recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia on TalkShoe for now. I'm still having problems connecting to TalkShoe. If it weren't for um, the good brethren that helped me manage this program, I wouldn't be able to get in. Of course, this program is broadcast on two Christogenia servers. Hopefully within the next, well, well, before the end of the month, that will expand to three servers. And um, not that three servers are necessary yet, but I see the day coming when, when um, Christogenia on, on TalkShoe meets its demise. And that's because, for some reason, on program days, uh, I mean, I'll be able to connect tomorrow, no problem. I'll be able to connect the next day, no problem. I won't be able to connect on program day, and that's been that that's been happening since November. That's been the case. So that they can, I, I don't know if this is um, harassment. I can't explain it any other way. I can't connect, regardless of which browser or which internet connection I have available that I use. And I have no other problems connecting to anywhere else on the Internet. I'm connected to Christiania right now. I'm watching the chat. I have uh, my Shoutcast servers, my, my um, radio servers I can monitor while I'm doing the program, and several other things, and I have no problem. So it has to be TalkShoe. For some reason, I can't connect to my program page at TalkShoe when it's program time. I can dial in so my voice is heard on TalkShoe and the recording is being made on TalkShoe, and I will continue to use those until that becomes impossible. I don't really need TalkShoe. I could broadcast live programming on all five of my servers if I so desire. Right now, two servers are running and are still running archives. They're the publicly listed servers I have. They're publicly listed at AOL shoutcast. They're just designed to um, to give our message more exposure. Sometimes they have listeners, sometimes they don't. It really doesn't matter to me. I got to change the programming a little more often. I should do that. I plan on changing it soon and updating it soon. Today is Friday, March first, two thousand and thirteen. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. Hello to everybody in the Christiania chat room. If you're listening on TalkShoe or if you're listening on, on the streaming radio, because I know that there are people who are listening to this program on my website who are not in the, talk, in, in the chat at Christiania.org, if you sign up for an account at Christiania.org, you will be admitted as long as you're not one of the usual trolls, and you'll be able to chat there during these programs. That chat is open 24-7, but nobody uses it except during the programs, mostly because Christiania.org has its own public TeamSpeak chat server for instructions on how to connect to that and, and to seek um, fellowship with the rest of the, the good brethren that listen to our programming and, and, and engage in dialogue with us you could go to christogenia.net and click on the Connect button at the top of the page for instructions. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. This is the Prophecy of Amos, Part 5. 
I, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's, it's I, I don't know, I'm amused. I'm sure everybody's amused by it. I've done four parts of Amos, and I haven't gotten hardly into the second, into the second chapter. Tonight we'll finish the chapter. We'll, we'll finish chapter two of Amos, and we have a lot more history to present. Over the past four segments of this presentation on the prophecy of Amos, we've discussed the ancient Mesopotamian inscriptions and their evidences of the existence and the demise of the ancient kingdoms of Damascus, Amman, Moab, Edom, and then Judah. In the past two segments of this presentation, we also witnessed some of the Greek historical attestations of the founding of the ancient kingdom of Israel by Moses as it was recounted by both Strabo the geographer and Theodore Siculus. Discussing the oracle of Amos against Judah last week, we saw three ancient witnesses attesting to the facts and circumstances concerning the history of the ancient kingdom of Judah as they are outlined in the Old Testament. These three witnesses were the late Shastrika, the tale or prism of Sennacherib, containing the annals of Sennacherib, and various Babylonian inscriptions attesting to the presence of the household of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, in captivity in Babylon. All of these things are more than sufficient proof, and there's a lot more. But these things are more than sufficient proof witnessing to the historicity of the books of the Old Testament. Here we shall further, we shall see further evidence from ancient inscriptions verifying the truth of the historical circumstances found in the writings of the Bible and of this prophet. With this, I will read the balance of Amos chapter 2 from verse 6. We left off last week with verses 4 and 5. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. And the man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Remember at this time the children of Israel were practicing paganism and the worship of the golden calves and bow worship and probably a hundred other heresies. Yet I destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith Yahweh, 
but you have given the Nazarites wine to drink. They had an oath not to drink wine. And commanded the prophets, saying, Prophecy not. Behold, I am pressed unto you. As a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself, neither shall he stand that handles the bow. And he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself, neither shall he that rides the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith Yahweh. An oracle of impending doom upon the children of Israel. Later in this presentation, we shall discuss the religious and prophetic aspects of this chapter of Amos and the oracles against Judah and Israel. Today, in keeping with the theme of the last four segments of this presentation, we shall examine some of the biblical history in concert with the Assyrian inscriptions attesting to the demise of ancient Israel, which is alluded to by the prophet here. In this passage from Amos, we see reference to the exodus from Egypt and the destruction of the Amorites before the children of Israel. We see that these are presented as examples of God's favor for them. The Amorites, called both Mark II, if you were a Sumerian scribe, and Amuru, if you were an Akkadian scribe. Akkadian was the language of Assyria. The Amorites, called both Martu and Amuru in the ancient inscriptions, were a once powerful people who dwelt to the west of Babylonia. In some of the earliest known sources, the inscriptions of ancient Sumer, which date back as far as the first half of the third millennium BC, that's from 3000 BC to 2500 BC, which is over 500 years before the time of Abraham. The Martu were the rather nomadic people who occupied the lands to the west of Babylonia, including what we know today as southern Syria, Lebanon, and the northern parts of ancient Israel, all a part of the land of Canaan. The Amorites were Canaanites. In an inscription of the Sumerian king, Ibisin, yes, that's his name, Ibisin, they are listed as the allies in the Sumerian cause against the Elamites. At that time, the Sumerians were at war with the Elamites. Ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, pages 480 and 481. The Elamites were, of course, the people who were later known as Persians. The Akkadian name for the Martu was Amuru, and they were the Amorites of Scripture. There are a couple of extant copies which have been discovered by archaeologists, one in Akkadian and one in Hittite, of a treaty between the Amorite king, Dubi Tasub, and the Hittite king, Mersilis I, who is presumed to have ruled Hatti, the land of the Hittites, from circa 1620 to 1590 B.C. The treaty contained mutual defense clauses between the Amorites and the Hittites, both of them being branches of the Canaanites. 
against both the Egyptians and the Hurrians. The Hurrians are the Horites of Scripture. They, too, are Canaanites. While Bible, while Bible students know there were originally ten tribes occupying the land of Canaan, which is evident from Genesis chapter 15, the Amorites certainly must have been the dominant tribe. While Genesis 15 distinguishes some of the tribes of the Canaanites, along with the Rephaim and the Kenites, so it is evident that for many centuries in antiquity, the Martu or Amuru were indeed a powerful nation, and that the Bible is indeed accurate concerning the location and the strength of these people. Later in the Egyptian inscriptions of the 14th and 13th centuries BC, notably those from Pharaoh Seti I and Ramses II, the land of Amuru remained the name which was used to describe the former land of the Amorites by that time, which included much of the land of Canaan. Ancient Near Eastern texts, pages 254 and 256. Land which was, by that time, inhabited by Israelites. The Egyptians still considered it the land of the Amuru. In the poetry of ancient Ugarit, which mostly concerns their idols Baal and Anath, there is mention of Amorite crafts. Whether is a line translated, gorgeous bowls shaped like small beasts, like those of Amuru. Ancient Near Eastern text, page 132. These people were a great and powerful people. They were powerful enough to have treaties with the Hittites at the height, at the height, basically the height of the Hittite Empire. They had mutual defense pacts with the Hittites against Egypt and against the Horites. So the Amorites were definitely a formidable people as the Bible considers them. So they were in the ancient inscriptions, in what we could call the secular records, right? Even though none of the records of antiquity are really secular. Joshua chapter 24, Judges chapter 11, and other scriptures describe the displacement of the Amorites by the children of Israel. However, like the other Canaanite tribes, the children of Israel failed to obliterate them totally, as they were instructed to do. There were still Amorites, which remained even up to the time when the Israelites were deported by the Assyrians. From 2 Chronicles, chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, I quote, As for all the people that were left of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which were not of Israel, but of their children who were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel consumed not, them did Solomon make to pay tribute until this day. Yes, they were subject to the Israelites right up until the time of the Assyrian deportations of Israel. In the later Assyrian inscriptions, those of the era of the Assyrian invasions of Palestine, one can see that the land of Amuru is greatly reduced from its former size. It was basically relegated to the northwestern desert portions, northeastern de desert portions, I'm sorry. Uh, 
which certainly establishes the biblical assertions that the Israelites had displaced the Amorites and others of the Canaanite tribes which inhabited the land of Canaan. That's certain. That can be certainly told from the inscriptions. And comparing the oldest inscriptions, those of 2500 B.C., from those of the 7th and 8th centuries B.C. The Amuru in their land is mentioned in the inscription of Tiglath Pileser I, who presumably ruled, ruled Assyria from 1114 to 1076 B.C., a time not long before that of Saul and David, where the exact extent of what he considered the country of Amuru to be is unclear from this one inscription. However, it clearly bordered all the way to the Mediterranean Sea in Syria. Ancient Near Eastern text, page 275. He may have been simply calling it the land of Amuru after tradition. I can't really answer that. In an inscription of Asher Nasir Pal, who ruled from 883 to 859 BC, the Amuru are mentioned in a list of tributaries which included Tyre, Sidon, Byblos, Arvad, and other cities which are therefore distinguished from those of the Amorites. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 276. Therefore, the biblical assertion that the children of Israel displaced the Amorites and other tribes of the Canaanites certainly seems to be accurate, even if the Syrian and Egyptian inscriptions concerning the land of the Amuru for dating from the second millennium BC do not distinguish the Amorites, who were originally the principal tribe of the land, from the Hebrew Israelites who later occupied much of the same land. The Amarna letters do describe some of the Hebrew invasions of the Levant in the 14th century BC and mention the lands of the Amuru and how they're being invaded. The first mention of an Israelite in the Assyrian inscriptions seems to be that of King Ahab, the first mention that, we, that, that I can find from extant inscriptions. Ahab the Israelite is mentioned in an inscription of Shalmaneser III, who presumably ruled Assyria from 858 to 824 BC. In that inscription, Ahab was said to have provided 10,000 foot soldiers to a coalition army from mostly Syrian cities which fought against the Assyrians. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 279. This account is not in our scriptures. <coughs> Excuse me. The earliest concern <coughs> over the expansion of Assyria, which is recorded in our scriptures, seems to be seems to be that of the prophet Jonah, whose ministry was no later than the early years of Jeroboam II, and Jeroboam II was the king of Israel from perhaps from 793 to 752 BC. This dating of Jonah is established in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where it says of Jeroboam 2, and I'll be citing this same citation later on in this presentation for a very good reason, that he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, 
the son of Amittai, the prophet who is of Gath Hefer. Solomon was said to have first taken Hamath and to have built cities in it, in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Hamath is nearly 120 miles north of Damascus. And Damascus is some distance north of Jerusalem. For the same coalition to which Ahab had contributed soldiers, the Assyrian inscriptions say that the city of Hamath had also contributed 10,000 soldiers. The Assyrian inscriptions say that the city of Hamath had contributed 10,000 soldiers, the same number as Ahab, to assemble a coalition army against the Assyrians, against Shalmanesarchery. So there is clearly a struggle between Israel and Assyria for control of the areas to the north of Palestine, which we can determine from the Bible and the inscriptions, and we'll see it again shortly. And the Assyrian inscriptions which follow, the name Israel is always Humri or Humria. H-U-U-M-R-I or H-U-M-R-I. They are both Assyrian transliterations of the name of Amri, the king of Israel. In this era, in the 8th century BC, and even towards the end of the 9th century BC, the land of Israel was called the Bit Humria, or the Bit Kamria, the land of Amri after that king. That the H should actually be enunciated as a KH in our language is evident in many Assyrian words. For instance, elsewhere in the Assyrian inscriptions, and we're actually going to read this inscription tonight, we see the Assyrian word Hilaku, H-I-L-A-K-K-U, refers to Kalikia. So in English, or in Greek, which is where Kalikia, the word Kalikia came into English from Greek, the H was transliterated as a K. The biblical, the biblical river, Habor, H-A-B-O-R, that we see in our Bibles, is in modern times spelled Kabor, K-H-A-B-U-R. That's right on Wikipedia. So the H in Assyrian is a very guttural H, just like Hebrew. That's why we have ham. In, in our English Bibles, we see ham. But if you look in your Strong's Concordance, you'll see cam, C-H-A-M, is the way Strong transliterated the word. Heth is all is is often Keth. The Hittites can be the Kittites. So the Bit Humria is the Bit Cumria. The Humri are the Cumri, the Greek Kimeroi, the Cimmerians. That's my point. 
From another, much later inscription of Shalmaneser III, we see the tribute, and I quote, the tribute of Jehu, son of Amri, or Humri. I received from him silver, gold, a golden sapu bowl, a golden vase with pointed bottom, golden tumblers, golden buckets, tin, a staff for a king. The tin probably came from the Tin Isles, from Cornwall, where the Phoenicians were mining tin. A staff for a king and wooden perutu. We don't know what perutu is, so the word is untranslated. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 281. The Bible does not mention this tribute which Jehu had made to the Assyrians. The same inscription states that Tyre and Sidon were also under tribute to Assyria at this time. This is an early time. This is the very end. Oh, I'm sorry. This is from 858 to 824, a little earlier than I thought. That's the middle of the 9th century B.C. 858 to 824 B.C. The Bible does not mention this tribute, which Jehu paid to the Assyrians. And Tyre and Sidon were also under tribute to Assyria at this time. And during this time, Assyria was frequently at war with the kings of the various cities of Syria. And that's the coalition which Ahab and the king of Hamath, or the people of Hamath, had contributed soldiers to. In an inscription of Adad Narari III, who presumably ruled Assyria from 810 to 783 BC, Israel is listed among the states which became tributary to Assyria upon an expedition of this king to Palestine. Here is part of a longer list of tributaries provided in the inscription, and I quote, from the banks of the Euphrates, the country of the Hittites. And let me just say as an aside that the Hittites, they're also quite often considered the accursed Hittites in the Assyrian inscriptions. Amuru country in its full extent, the country of the Amorites. Tyre, Sidon, Israel, Humri, Edom, Palestine, Palastu, that's the land of the Philistines, it should be Philistia. I don't know why they translate that Palestine. As far as the shore of the great sea of the setting sun, I made them all submit to my feet, imposing upon them tribute. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 281. Neither is this tribute, which was probably in the reigns of either Jehoash or early in that of Jeroboam II, explicitly mentioned in our scriptures. In the time of Jehoaz, who preceded Jehoash, king of Israel, it is said in scripture that Israel was oppressed by the Syrians. For his entire reign, perhaps this tribute imposed by Adad Narari III on his campaign, perhaps that ended this period. That's conjectural. But the tribute collected by Adad Narari III had to follow it closely. Two Kings chapter 13. Israel was oppressed by Syria for the entire reign of King Jehoaz. Jehoaz. Now in this same campaign, 
that put Israel under tribute once again to the Assyrians. Damascus was also taken by Adad Narari III. So they weren't going to oppress the children of Israel anymore as they did in the reign of Jehoahaz. Now note the time of this campaign of Adad Narari III. He ruled Assyria from 810 to 783 BC. These dates are going to be important shortly. From an inscription of Tiglath Pileser III, who ruled Assyria from 744, his reign began 39 years after Adad Narari III's reign ended. That's important. From an inscription of Tiglath Pileser III, who ruled Assyria from 744 to 727 BC, this inscription is translated by the famous D.D. Luckinville. The towns of the upper sea I brought under my rule. Six officers of mine I installed as governors over them. The town of Rashpuna, which is situated at the coast of the upper sea. The towns, not, now there's a, an ellipsis here, and I only see the letters N-I-T-E, and I don't know what town that refers to and neither evidently did the translator. Gaza, Abilaka, which are adjacent to Israel, and the wide land of Naphtali, and its entire extent, I, meaning Tiglath Pillars of Three, united with Assyria, Officers of mine I installed as governors upon them. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 283. Now this inscription is fragmented, and the word Naphtali is assumed by the translators, by D.D. Luckinville, because only the end of the word is legible in the inscription. However, it may be the only viable reading which fits the context. What we have just witnessed from these Assyrian inscriptions is that the Assyrian king, Adad Nerari III, who ruled from 810 to 783 BC, went on a long military campaign with a great army and subjected under tribute Syria. He conquered Damascus, which had been troubling Assyria for quite some time, and Israel, and all the nations of the Levant. Then, over 40 years later, Tiglath Pileser III once again gathered a large army and went out and conquered these same places. We are not told in the surviving inscriptions exactly why these places had to be resubjected to the Assyrians. But it is obvious that such, such is what had occurred. However, we do have the answer in our Bibles. For roughly corresponding the 40-plus years between these two Assyrian kings is the reign of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. Jeroboam II regained all these lands from the Assyrians and placed them back under the control of Israel. That's why Tiglath Pileser III had to launch a new campaign and regain Assyrian dominion. Here is the biblical account 
from 2 Kings chapter 14, I'll read verses 23 through 29. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath, 120 miles north of Damascus, under the sea of the plain, according to the word of Yahweh, God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Dath Hefer. For Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And Yahweh said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and his might, how he warred, and how he recovered Damascus, Hamath, which belonged to Judah, for Israel. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his stead. Adad-Nerari III conquers the land under a wicked Israelite king. Jeroboam really wasn't better. Jeroboam II ascends to the throne and recovers that land for Israel. A few decades later, Tiglath Pileser III launches a new campaign and gets it back again for Assyria. Here is the struggle for what was then, basically, at that time, the center of what we may call Western civilization. The Bible is a history book, even though it is recorded from what might be considered a religious perspective. And there is no doubt about it that it is a history book once it is studied from the proper perspective. Now putting the world in perspective, while all of this is transpiring, let's see what else is going on. The Ionians, the Greeks of Athens, they were conquering the Phoenician cities of Anatolia at this time. They gained hegemony over Miletus. And the rest of Caria, they established Ionia. Rome, the so-called eternal city, 750 BC, the time of Jeroboam II, it's not even on the maps. The traditional date of the founding of Rome is 753 B.C. So the city is just now being founded. Where did the Romans come from? They came from Troy. They came from the east. According to all of their own legends and those of the Greeks, the Trojans, in turn, were said to have come from the Mediterranean Isles. All of Italy was settled from the east by Minoans, by Lydians, by Trojans, and by Greeks, the Lydians being the Etrurians or Etruscans of northern Italy. By all the accounts of the Greeks, this is so. 
After Rome was founded, according to Livy, they sent men to Athens to study the laws of Solon, which formed the basis of the first Roman laws. Carthage, according to the reckoning of Josephus from the now lost chronicles of ancient Tyre. Carthage is only about 100 years old at this time. That's it. Carthage was founded about 850 B.C. Where did the Carthaginians come from? They came from Tyre, from the east, blonde Phoenician Dido. Beautiful blonde Phoenician Dido, in the words of the poet Virgil. Came from Tyre, from the east. According to all of the histories of the Levant and of the Greeks. At this time, the coasts of Spain and the Isles of Britain were known only as Phoenician outposts. The Phocians, who were Ionian Greeks, had not yet founded Marseille. Massilia, the city which we know today as Marseille, was a Phocian Greek city in the 7th century B.C. In 750 B.C., the earliest surviving Greek poets had not even begun to write. Yet, by the time of Herodotus, 300 years later, Athens would represent the new center of Western civilization. Continuing from the same inscription of Tiglath Pileser III, and I quote, As to Hanno of Gaza, who had fled before my army and run away to Egypt, I conquered the town of Gaza. Now there are some ellipses here. His personal property, his image, his images, and I placed the images of my gods and my royal image in his own palace, and declared them to be, thenceforward, the gods of their country. I, opposed upon, I imposed upon them tribute. As for Menahem, Menahem the king of Israel, I overwhelmed him like a snowstorm, and he fled like a bird, alone and bowed to my feet. I returned him to his place and imposed tribute upon him, to wit, gold, silver, linen, garments with multicolored trimmings, great, and is an ellipsis, I received from him, Israel, all its inhabitants and their possessions I led to Assyria. They overthrew their king, Pekah, and I placed Hosea as king over them. I received from them ten talents of gold, one thousand talents of silver as their tribute, and brought them to Assyria. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, pages 283 and 284. Here in the annals of Tiglath-Pileser III, we witness the beginnings of the deportations of the Israelites to the cities of Assyria. The information in this ancient Assyrian inscription concerning Gaza, Abilaka, and Naphtali, 
the beginnings of the deportations of the Israelites, and the events surrounding the, the kings Pekah and Hosea is very much in agreement with the account from 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 29 and 30, albeit from a somewhat different point of view, since it's the Assyrian perspective. 2 Kings 15, 29 and 30, quote, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ejan, and Abel-Beth-Makkah, and Genoa, and Kadesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali, as the inscription says, and carried them captive to Assyria. And Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah. Perhaps he approached the, the Assyrians and promised them something. The son of Remaliah, and smote him and slew him and reigned in his stead, as the Assyrian king boasts of appointing him. In the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, Uzziah was the king of Judah, right? Jotham was his son who succeeded him. Note that this Assyrian inscription also details the custom of an imperial power imposing its own gods on the subjected people, which is evident here in the Assyrian inscription of Tiglath Pileser III, which is what he did in Gaza. He took down their gods and their images, put up his own, and made the people worship them. It is practically the same custom which imperial Rome had later followed in placing the images of their emperor in the temples of the subject peoples and expecting those peoples to sacrifice to those images, to sacrifice to the emperor. It is the same custom which the medieval Catholic Church began and which the Protestant churches have continued, enforcing their own corrupted forms of Christianity onto the world's alien peoples. It's the same thing all over again. The names have changed, some of the methods have changed, but it's the same thing. Today, American imperialism also imposes its own gods on the peoples of the world. Therefore, they all wear Levi's, eat McDonald's, and enforce laws forbidding anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. It's because the American God is really the Jew. From an inscription of, Tig of Sargon II, who ruled Assyria from 721 to 705 B.C., and I quote, Property of Sargon, king of Assyria, conqueror of Samaria, and of the entire country of Israel. This boast is important, and we'll discuss why later on. Who despoiled Ashdod and Shinuti, who caught the Greeks who live on islands in the sea, like fish, who exterminated Kasku, Old Tabali, and Kalikia, Halaku, in the inscription. Who chased away Midas, the king of Musku, who defeated Muser in Rapihu, who declared Hanno, king of Gaza, as booty, who subdued the seven kings of the country Yah, imagine that, a district in Cyprus, who dwell on an island in the sea at a distance of a seven-day journey, 
ancient Near Eastern texts, page 284. Here we see Assyria not only once again conquering the Levant, the wider area of Palestine and northern Syria, but also extending its reach into Anatolia. Now this Midas, who was mentioned here as the king of Muscu, is not the famous Midas of Greek legend. The famous Midas of Greek legend was about 100 years later, and he was the king of Phrygia in western Anatolia. Rather, the name seems to have been popular in Anatolia. However, the Tabali and the Musku can certainly be associated with the Jephthah, Tubal, and Meshech of Scripture of Genesis chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And they dwelt on the coast of the Black Sea at this time in the 8th century B.C. Colicia and Cyprus were at this time populated with Phoenicians, the dispersion of the northern tribes of Israel. From another quite fragmented inscription of Sargon II, and I quote, At the beginning of my royal rule, I, and there's an ellipsis, the town of the Samarians I besieged, conquered, and there's an ellipsis of two lines, and it says, for the God, and it has another ellipsis, who let me achieve this my triumph. I led away as prisoners 27,290 inhabitants of it. That's Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And equipped from among them soldiers to man 50 chariots for my royal corps. Typical imperialism is to make your subjects your soldiers and grow your empire larger so that it could go out and conquer more land. The town I rebuilt better than it was, better than it was before, and settled therein people from countries which I myself had conquered. I placed an officer of mine as governor over them and imposed upon them tribute, as is customary for Assyrian citizens. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 284. From yet another inscription witnessing the same events, and it reads very similarly, and I quote, I besieged and conquered Samaria, led away as booty 27,290 inhabitants of it. I formed from among them a contingent of 50 chariots and made remaining inhabitants, meaning not all of the Israelites were taken, assume their social positions. I installed over them an officer of mine and imposed upon them the tribute of the former king. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, pages 284 and 285. The primary biblical record of this event is found in 2 Kings 17, verses 1 through 6. And I quote, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, began Hosea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. Against him came up Shalmanassar, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his servant and gave him presents. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, for he had sent messengers 
to so the king of Egypt and brought no present to the king of Assyria, didn't pay his tribute, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Halah and in Habor and by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes, where they became Scythians. But the Assyrians brought in people from other places which they had conquered and settled them in Samaria, as this inscription states, is attested to in 2 Kings 17.24, and I quote, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Cusah, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim. Possibly the name which gives us Sephardic and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. The account in two kings is recapitulated. Yes, there are some people that doubt that the Bible actually recapitulates itself. Well, it does. The account in 2 Kings 17 is recapitulated in part at 2 Kings 18, verses 9 through 12, where it says... And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years they took it, even in the sixth year of Hezekiah. That is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel. Samaria was taken. And this king of Assyria did carry away Israel into Assyria and put them in Halah and in Habor, and by the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Because they obeyed not the voice of Yahweh their God, but transgressed his covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded, and would not hear them nor do them. In two kings, the Assyrian king who did these things is called Shalmanesar, while in the Assyrian inscriptions, he is Sargon too. This apparent conflict is easily remedied once it is realized that all of these Assyrian kings had multiple names, most of which were merely titles in the Akkadian language, and not the personal given names to which we are accustomed. The use of names such as Darius and Ahasuerus or Artaxerxes in other scriptures and in ancient inscriptions, further illustrates this point. Nehemiah, being the governor of Judah, for instance, is at one point in the book of Nehemiah called Ahasuerus. Yet that same exact title is also applied to the king known as Artaxerxes, to the king of Assyria. Ahasuerus is a title many of these Assyrian names are also really just titles. From the inscription of Sargon II, from the first year of his rule as king, and I quote, Yamani, from Ashdod, yes, that's a Yahweh name, like Jehovah, or Jehoram, or Jehoash, 
or Jehoiachin. Yamani from Ashdod, afraid of my armed force, left his wife and children and fled to the frontier of Musru, which belongs to Maluha. This is Ethiopia it refers to. Ethiopia, south of Egypt. And hid there like a thief. I installed an officer of mine as governor over his entire large country and its prosperous inhabitants. This is the king of Assyria calling Ashdod a large country with prosperous inhabitants. It wasn't a desert hellhole at this time. Thus aggrandizing again the territory belonging to Asher, the king of the gods. The terror-inspiring Asher, my lord, overpowered. However, the king of Maluha, and he threw him in Yamani, meaning Yamani, the king of Ashdod, in fetters on hands and feet, and sent him to me, to Assyria. I conquered and sacked the towns of Shinutu and Samaria and all Israel. I caught like a fish the Greek meaning Ionians, the, the, the Assyrian word is the word for the Ionians, the Greeks who live on islands amidst the Western Sea. Later in the rule of Sargon, the year after it was first taken and not recorded in the, and not recorded in the Bible, was another revolt at Samaria, which was again put down forcibly by the Assyrians. That revolt would have been a revolt of the remnant that were left behind, and possibly also some of the people that were moved in from other places, which we've already listed. The Greeks had the, the Greeks actually had a pretty large presence in the Levant at this time. The Greek lyric poets are among the earliest Greek poets. Some of them wrote in the early 7th century B.C., if I had to guess. Sappho, Alcaeus. Alcaeus actually mentions the Babylonian siege and destruction of Ashkelon, and he actually mentions Greeks being mercenaries in the employ of the Babylonians. It's almost certain that Greek mercenaries helped tear down Jerusalem in 586 BC. From another inscription of Sargon II, from the fifth year of his rule as king of Assyria, upon a trust-inspiring oracle given by Asher, I crushed the tribes of Tammud. Ibididi, Mary, Mar- Marcy Manu, I'm sorry, and Hyapa, the Arabs who live far away in the desert and who know neither overseers nor officials and who had not yet brought their tribute to any king. I deported their survivors and settled them in Samaria. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 286. It is no wonder that the Judahites who returned from Babylon would later despise the Samaritans. 
However, the scripture also demonstrates that a significant number of Israelites who managed to escape captivity remained in Samaria. And history attests that a significant number of the people brought into Samaria by the Assyrians were Adamic people from elsewhere in Mesopotamia and adjoining lands. Yet it is clear that there were also many Canaanite and other so-called Arabs, a word which at that time can designate a people of mixed tribes regardless of their exact nature. Or the word may have been used as a geographical distinction as the Romans later used it. But the translator here does not specify. The Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, who ruled from 680 to 669 BC, was also often occupied with seditions against the empire in Tyre and Sidon and the lands of former Israel. And he was still importing aliens into Samaria. And therefore we see in Ezra chapter 4 verse 2 the following. Then they, meaning the the certain of the Samaritans, came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asser, which brought us up hither. Of course, the Judahites rejected the proposal and dealt with much political strife on account of it. This occurred in the time of Cambyses, the king of Persia. The rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem was actually put off throughout the entire reign of Cambyses and unto the time of Artaxerxes on account of this. In one of the inscriptions cited earlier, Sargon too boasted of being the conqueror of Samaria. In one of his later inscriptions, he boasted of himself as the subduer of the country of Judah, which is far away, as the uprooter of Hamath, the ruler of which, Yahubidi, yes, that's another Yah name, the ruler of Hamath at the time of Sargon II, Yahubidi, he captured personally. That's ancient Near Eastern text, page 287. The next king, a few short years later, was Sennacherib, who conquered Judah. And the records insist that he had at least several hundred thousand troops with him when he besieged Jerusalem. Sargon, Sargon II, must have considered it no small feat to be the subduer of Judah, or the uprooter of Hamath, or the conqueror of Samaria, as we have seen him boast in his inscriptions, which are cited here tonight. These are large and powerful cities. And we have seen in the Assyrian inscriptions of Shalmaneser III, who ruled Assyria from 858 to 824 BC, that Ahab, who was the king of Israel, but that was a much reduced Israel in the divided kingdom, that Ahab was able to lend 10,000 foot soldiers to a confederacy which fought against that king. And Hamath also lent 10,000 foot soldiers to a confederacy to the same cause. The scripture did not even mention Ahab's loan 
of such a large army to such a cause. And therefore, it could not have been even considered a significant act. 10,000 soldiers. What's 10,000 soldiers to Ahab? Likewise, Hamath, nearly 120 miles north of Damascus, was a vassal state to Israel for most of the history of Israel, which is evident in several places in Scripture. Putting these things together, the tenor of the Assyrian inscriptions certainly helps to prove that Israel was every bit the great nation-state that the Bible purports it to have been. The narrative of the Assyrian inscriptions certainly helps to prove that the Bible is indeed an important and historically accurate book. Now to briefly discuss the religious reasons for the punishment of Israel and Judah as they are uttered by Amos. There were, of course, many other reasons illustrated in the book of Hosea and in Isaiah and some of the other prophets. Back to Amos chapter 2, verse 4. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of Yahweh and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. We see Judah was primarily chastised here for having despised the law of Yahweh their God and not keeping his commandments. Scriptural evidence of this is found in 2 Chronicles chapters 34 and 35, where the later reforms of the young king Hosiah are described. Josiah, or Josiah, I should say. Unfortunately, Josiah's reforms did not extend past his own reign and are a classic example of too little, too late. And Yahweh knows it and told him that in this chapter, 2 Chronicles 34. Here are some of the details from that chapter. In fact, I'm going to read the chapter. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. And he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, he would be a boy of 16. While he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father, then in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And they broke down the altars of Baalim in his presence 
and the images that were on high above them. He cut down. And the groves and the carved images and their molten images, he broke in pieces and made dust of them. And strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali, with their mattocks round about. Now it's 632 B.C., or perhaps, I'm sorry, 628 B.C. And not all of the children of Israel were deported by the Assyrians. There was certainly a remnant of those who had escaped. A considerable number were deported, there's no doubt, but not all of them. Verse 7. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maasiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, or Joahaz, I'm sorry, the recorder, to repair the house of Yahweh his God. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered of the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and all of the remnant of Israel, and all of Judah and Benjamin, now most of Israel and Judah, and Benjamin had been deported by the Assyrians, but there was a considerable remnant left behind. And they returned to Jerusalem. And they put it in the hand of the workmen that had the oversight of the house of Yahweh. And they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of Yahweh to repair and amend the house. Even to the artificers and builders they gave it. To buy hewn stone and timber for couplings and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. The temple evidently didn't even have a floor. It was destroyed or rotted away. And the men did the work faithfully, and the overseers of them were Yahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites, to set it forward, and other the Levites, all that could skill of instruments of music. Now here it is readily evident just how far into disrepair the ancient temple of Yahweh had fallen. Also they were over their bearers of burdens and were overseers of all that wrought the work in any manner of service. And of the Levites there were scribes and officers and porters. They had all neglected all those duties for all those years. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of Yahweh, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of Yahweh given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan, 
And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of Yahweh and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and to the hand of the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Asiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of Yahweh for me, and for them that are left in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of Yahweh to do all that is written in this book. And Hilkiah, and they that the king had appointed, went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvah, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college. And they spoke to her that to, they spoke to her to that effect. And she answered them, Thus saith Yahweh the God of Israel. Now when a woman is a prophetess, it's a disgrace to men. That's the shape of Jerusalem. The law was found basically as a reward to this young king because he had already turned his heart to his God and therefore the book of the law was found. That's my opinion. And she answered them, Thus saith Yahweh the God of Israel, Tell ye the man that sent you to me. Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book, which they have read before the king of Judah, this book of the law, which had been neglected for so many years and just found. Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, so shall you say to him, Thus saith Yahweh the God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst Humble thyself before God. When thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and did rend, did rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith Yahweh, Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem 
And the king went up into the house of Yahweh. And all the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the Levites, and all the people, great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of Yahweh. And the king stood in his place, and made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh, and to keep his commandments, and his testimonies, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertained to the children of Israel, and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve Yahweh their God. And all his days they departed not from following Yahweh, the God of their fathers. So we see that on account of Josiah's reforms, Jerusalem was spared destruction during the time of Josiah only. But that the punishment of Jerusalem uttered by the prophets, such as Amos, would not be curtailed. Much of this promised punishment upon Judah had occurred long before Josiah, when in approximately 701 B.C., Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had taken the 46 fenced cities of Judah and destroyed most of them and deported over 200,000 of their inhabitants to lands far north. And you can be assured that many people also died at that time. However, the destruction of Jerusalem... And also, although it is little discussed by Bible expositors, the destruction of mainland Tyre, which we will discuss next week, and some of the others of the remaining cities of the Levant, was not to happen until the rise of the Babylonian Empire, which had replaced that of the Assyrians, not long after Josiah's death, was Jerusalem destroyed maybe 20 years after Josiah's death, in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II. Amos 2, verse 6, through the end of the chapter. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in under the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. False idols. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. And he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. 
And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O children of Israel, saith Yahweh, that you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophecy not. Behold, I am pressed under you, as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. The burden is heavy. Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself, neither shall he stand that handles the bow. And he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself, neither shall he that rides the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith Yahweh. The oracles against Israel are continued in chapter 3. Although Yahweh their God had led them out of the captivity in Egypt and had shown them his favor by destroying the ancient nations of Canaan, and here specifically, specifically that of the Amorites, which we've established from the ancient inscriptions to have been a quite powerful nation, so that the Israelites may have their land, the children of Israel still could not deal justly with their own people. Here, the children of Israel, contrary to Judah, are not really chastised for not keeping Yahweh's laws and commandments. While they had indeed long forsaken those, that was probably inevitable as soon as the original kingdom of David and Solomon was split into two pieces. At that time, the king that Yahweh himself anointed over Israel had commanded the ten northern tribes to forsake the worship at Jerusalem, and he led them off into paganism. After the death of Solomon and the division of the kingdom, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, sought to prevent it. Yet Yahweh commanded Rehoboam not to prevent it. At that time, the Jeroboam, the newly appointed king of Israel, changed the worship of the people to paganism. Here is the synopsis from 2 Kings, chapter 12, verses 22 to 31, where it says, But the word of God came unto Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Every man return to his house. For this thing is from me. They hearken, therefore, to the word of Yahweh, and return to depart according to the word of Yahweh. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein, and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn against their Lord, meaning against himself, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. 
Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, thy gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt, two golden calves. The return to the worship of the golden calf. And he sent the one in Bethel and put the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people which were not of the sons of Levi. Well, of course, the pagan worship was not right in the eyes of God. It was nevertheless inevitable. As Yahweh told Rehoboam, this is from me. Yet Israel is chastised here in Amos because they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. References to the fornication committed in their paganism, the ancient fertility rituals of bow worship. They were also chastised for the manner in which they treated their fellows, selling the righteous and the poor into slavery, abandoning brotherly love. They also gave the Nazarites wine to drink, meaning that those who would be righteous before God, they resented and corrupted, forcing them to comply with the general immorality of the nation. The Nazarites had a vow from birth not to drink wine. We see some of those same circumstances throughout the West today in different terms, that if one desires to act righteously, he is resented and persecuted by society if you don't engage in race mixing, if you resent sexual deviancy, if you speak out against the perversions of the world. In addition to these things, Amos here chastises the children of Israel because they forbid the prophets from prophesying if you speak out against the perversions of the world that they did not want the prophets to speak the truth and to teach the word of Yahweh their God. From Isaiah chapter 30, speaking to the children of Israel, I quote from verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, saith Yahweh, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. And from verse 8, now go, write it before them in a tablet, and note it in the book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of Yahweh, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophecy Deceits. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, because you despise his word and trust in oppression and perverseness 
and stay thereon. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly at an instant. Today, the forbidding of men from speaking the truth is called political correctness. We have these same circumstances. This finishes our presentation of Amos chapter 2. Next week, we shall commence with chapter 3 and more of the oracles against the children of Israel. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. I will be here tomorrow night with pastors Mark Downing and Ken Lant. We will be be presenting, well, they will be presenting, I should say, The Constitution Christian, part two. Thank you and good night. Praise Yahweh. And hail victory.